Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Parents, you may dismiss your children for Children's Church if you choose to do that at this time. Uh, The rest of you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, and we'll be looking at verses 32 through 35 this morning of Mark chapter 14. I'll be preaching uh, all the way through June, and uh, I'm going to be preaching sermons on the theme of the suffering and death of Jesus. Now, I know we typically associate that theme with something around Good Friday, but it's actually a predominant theme throughout the entire New Testament. Just consider that of the 28 chapters in Matthew's gospel, Matthew begins treating the last week of Jesus' life involving his suffering and his death in Jerusalem in chapter 21. So 21 through 28 are all dealing with the passion and suffering of Jesus, a quarter of Matthew's gospel. Also consider that Luke has 24 chapters in it, and he begins charting the path of Jesus to Jerusalem and to his death there on the cross in chapter 9, verse 51. So chapter 9, verse 51, is when Luke starts charting the path of Jesus on the way to the cross of 24 chapters. And so uh, it's right for us to give some extended treatment of the topic of the passion and suffering of Jesus. So that's what I want to begin this morning. Matthew chapter 14, verses 32 through 35. Please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. But witnessing the suffering of others makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Uh, if you've ever been in the presence of someone who's just broken down in tears and grief and anguish, you know that it's uncomfortable. Have you ever had to enter the hospital room of a suffering patient who likely isn't going to make it through the night? Or have you ever stood in line at a funeral and the closer you get to the grieving family members, the more awkward and uncomfortable you become? What is it that makes us so uncomfortable in the face of the suffering of others? Well, I imagine that at least in part, it's that we really don't know what to say And we really don't know what to do with the suffering of others. We feel powerless and it makes us feel uncomfortable. And we don't really know what to say. We don't really know what to do with Gethsemane either. I mean, just the mere mention of the word brings an immediate sobriety to it. Gethsemane. It it seems dark in there, doesn't it? And it's not just because we imagine the darkness of the night during which all this takes place, but because it's kind of cloaked in mystery. What, what is it exactly that's going on in there? And, and, and what is it that's going on in the soul of Jesus in Gethsemane? 
Well, that's hard for us to say what's going on because we don't really know. He took with him his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, but only three of them, Peter, James, and John, are allowed to go deeper into Gethsemane with him. But according to Luke chapter 22, 41, even these three must remain a stone's throw away from where Jesus goes and prays. So we can follow Jesus into Gethsemane, but only up to a point, and then we can't go any further. Jesus, as our great high priest, it's as if he enters in behind the veil to accomplish this work alone, and we can only go so far. And as he enters Gethsemane, it seems that he enters into this new kind of phase or experience. We read that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he informs his three disciples that his soul is very sorrowful even unto death. And, and, and it seems like what we're watching is some kind of meltdown that Jesus has. And, and we feel like we're witnessing our comforter deprived of comfort. That our prince of peace is deprived of peace in the agony of Gethsemane. And we wonder, what are we to make of this agony in Gethsemane? That's what we want to consider this morning. And there, there's some perplexity as we try to understand Gethsemane. So let's go ahead and start there. The perplexing question of his agony. Now remember that just a few hours before he enters Gethsemane, he's been in the upper room with his disciples and he's teaching them, he's serving them, he's preparing them for his arrest and eventual crucifixion in Jerusalem. And Jesus is focused and he's determined. He even dismisses Judas who will betray him with the words, what you're about to do, do quickly. And it seems like there's no faltering at any point for Jesus on this road to the cross. And this is consistent through his entire life and ministry. But all of a sudden, we enter into Gethsemane. And now it's different. There's this sudden change in his spirit and in his resolve. He seems to be unraveling in Gethsemane. And we're not only left with the question of what's happening to Jesus, what's going on in his soul, we're left with the perplexing question of what to do with the fact that other people have faced their approaching death with greater fortitude and a greater calmness than Jesus does here. What are we to make of this? In the moment of crisis, does Jesus prove to be weak in faith? I mean, what, what exactly is happening here? Consider the serenity of the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. It's a painting of that by David. Uh, Socrates was sentenced to drink poisonous hemlock for corrupting the youth of his time. But according to Plato's report, Socrates doesn't break down like Jesus does here. And consider also that many of Jesus' followers who have been martyred for their faith don't break down like Jesus does here in Gethsemane. Listen to the account of the church father Ignatius. He was martyred by being thrown to the beasts in the second century. And this is the report of Ignatius. We read that having come to Smyrna, Ignatius wrote to the church in Rome, exhorting them not to use means for his deliverance from martyrdom, lest they should deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. He said, now I begin to be a disciple. 
I care for nothing of, of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be thrown to the beasts, such was the burning desire that he had to suffer that he spoke at the time he heard the lions roaring saying, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. That's how Ignatius was facing his martyrdom. You can also point to the forerunner of the Reformation, Jan Hus, who was condemned to be burned at the stake in 1415, and it's reported that Hus died as the flames were going around him singing hymns. He was singing as he was being burned. So what do we make of these people being able to face death with calmness and repose and peace, and yet Jesus is shrinking in Gethsemane? Well, we can say a few things. We need to remember that it's possible for some people to face death with mistaken notions about what death is and what death brings. That death ushers one into the presence of a holy and righteous God to be completely exposed before his gaze. It's possible for some people not to realize that that's what faces them at death, but it's not possible for Jesus to be mistaken in that. Furthermore, we need to remember that his own people were able to face their death in the light of the promises and the hope that Jesus secures. But Jesus is not able to benefit from the fruits that his death brings. His death must actually secure those very fruits. His followers get to die in the hope that his death brings. He doesn't. He has to win that hope for his people. And above all, when we're perplexed by these questions about how can other people go through death and face it with greater calmness than Jesus does, we must remember that Jesus' death is not the death of a martyr. Jesus is not dying the death of a martyr. Jesus is dying the death of a redeemer. He's dying the death of the redeemer. No martyr ever died for the sins of the world. And so, on a parallel level, Christ's death cannot be compared to anyone else's. It's unique. Because Jesus dies not as a mere man, but he dies as the substitute for the sins of his people. And that actually brings us to the second thing, because it might help us consider some of the possible causes for his agony. The possible causes for his agony. Now, because Jesus' death isn't just any death, but that of a substitute, it's unlikely that the cause of his anxiety and distress here can be attributed simply to the increasing proximity of his physical suffering and death. As that draws nearer, perhaps his anxiety levels are increasing, like a man on death row who feels different the evening before his execution than he did weeks or months prior. I mean, it's common for all of us to feel more anxiety the closer a stressful event becomes. We all experience that. I don't know if Aaron was uh, nervous about reading scripture publicly this morning, but, but if she was, she was probably most nervous right before she came up because that's the way our bodies work. We become more anxious. And there's no reason to suppose that that's not on some level true of Jesus and his humanity as well. 
he may have been feeling this tension. But this can't be the, the root cause behind the depth of his agony and distress in Gethsemane. After all, Jesus has instructed his disciples not to fear those who can only kill the body. Don't be afraid of those people. And certainly he took this instruction to heart. So it has to be more than that. There has to be something deeply spiritual going on here in the moment. It's not just about anticipation, but in that moment, there's something causing agony in the depths of Jesus' soul. But what is it? Well, consider another possible cause then. Maybe this agony in Gethsemane is caused by the attacks of Satan. Maybe Satan is attacking Jesus. Jesus refers elsewhere to this time in Gethsemane as the power of darkness. That's how he labels it, the power of darkness. And certainly we know that Satan has been active in the unfolding events. He's already entered Judas, who will betray Jesus. He's asked to sift Peter as wheat, and that leads to Peter's denial of Jesus. A couple other interesting things. We're told that after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness early in his ministry, that the devil left him until a more opportune time. Is Gethsemane that more opportune time? Because the gospel writers never tell us exactly when that is. So we're left to speculate. Is, is that what's happening at Gethsemane? Think about this. Just as there were three temptations in the wilderness early in his ministry, Jesus prays in the garden three times. And just as the essence of those early temptations were for Jesus to abandon the work of redemption and forego his sufferings, so Jesus prays here in the garden three times that the cup of suffering might pass from him. Now, we don't read anything explicitly about Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it's likely that he's there. It's likely that he's present. And, and perhaps not just him, but perhaps all the legions of demonic forces are now converging upon Jesus in a last-ditch attempt to secure their hold on the kingdom of darkness. That everything's converged upon him now. And he's doing battle with the forces of darkness. And I've often wondered... Is that why the disciples fall asleep so easy? That perhaps they're just completely left alone and they experience the sweetest, most undisturbed sleep they've ever had in their life because all the forces of darkness are, confer are converging upon the Savior. And though Satan isn't ultimately able to defeat Christ, it is possible that he was able to cause him great distress during this hour. But consider another possibility. Isn't it possible that Jesus is now beginning to apprehend and actually begin to bear the sins of his people? Think about this. He's entering a garden to bear the sin that first entered in another garden, in the Garden of Eden. And here we see the second Adam beginning to bear the guilt and condemnation and punishment that was owed by the first Adam through his sin. And as Jesus begins to bear that sin, it causes horror and anguish and despair in the perfect soul of Jesus. And we think, well, 
why would sin cause that kind of distress? Well, of course we would think that because sin doesn't cause us that kind of distress, but we don't see sin clearly. The, the light in our own souls is too dark for us to see the real ugliness of sin and how grotesque it actually is. We do not perceive sin clearly. We don't notice the ugly stench of it because we're like painters who have been applying the paint so long that we no longer notice the smell. But this isn't true of Jesus. Jesus knows how heinous and ugly sin actually is. He smells its stench. The horrors of sin are clearly perceived in the perfect light of Jesus' soul. But this is very important. Jesus doesn't simply need to see the sin clearly. Jesus needs to bear that sin. Jesus has to become infected with the sins of his people, with all of your sins and all of my sins. He has to become infected with the sins of murder, of rape, of slander, of hatred and cruelty and anger and greed and adultery and every form of idolatry, your sins and my sins. He must actually be made sin for he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And this reality in his perfect holiness causes horror. It causes him to be overwhelmed. It knocks him off balance as we see him falling face first in the dirt of Gethsemane. And because he's made sin, perhaps Jesus is also beginning to anticipate or even beginning to experience the turning away of his father. I mean, isn't it possible that he's beginning to taste or at least smell the cup of wrath that's now being lifted to his lips that he's asking that would pass away from him? Now, remember that when Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai, Moses was terrified and had to look away. But that was God coming to Moses in covenant. That was God coming to Moses in grace. But now the Father is coming to Jesus, the sin bearer, with sword raised and extending the cup of wrath. And keep in mind, this is happening to Jesus, the eternal son who has experienced perfect fellowship and communion with his father through all eternity. The father has been his highest delight and now his father is turning away from him. Jesus must be accursed, forsaken, and despised by his father as the sin bearer and he recoils in the face of this. Now, perhaps what we see happening here is the fulfillment also of Isaiah, who alerts us that the suffering servant will be crushed because it's the Lord's will to crush him. And I don't know if you know what Gethsemane is, but Gethsemane is an olive press. It's an olive grove where olives would have been pressed for their oil. Now, oil is often a symbol in Scripture of the Spirit, and it's possible. It's possible that here in this olive press, the Spirit of Christ is being crushed by his father. Now there's, there's more to come. It's not the full extent of being crushed. He'll still have to cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as we'll see next week, 
The Father, there's no voice coming from heaven assuring Jesus of his sonship. In fact, what's sent to Jesus is an angel to strengthen him. But not the voice of the Father. He doesn't hear that. And so perhaps, knowing from the prophet Isaiah, it's the Lord's will to crush him here in Gethsemane. Perhaps that process is beginning. And so, the increasing proximity of his suffering and death the attacks of Satan, the beginning to bear the sins of his people, beginning to experience the turning away of his father, all of these are possible causes for his agony in Gethsemane. But in the end, all we can really speak about are possibilities of what's going on because the text never gives us a specific explanation about what's going on. It never tells us explicitly. And even if it did attempt to offer an explanation would it really help us get it? I don't know. You know, I don't understand how sound can be recorded. I don't understand how that works. And I certainly don't understand how somebody could invent devices that would record sound. I mean, it just it boggles my mind. I don't understand how I can watch a live sporting event taking place in California in my own living room while it's happening. I don't understand how that works. I don't understand how planes fly. That's why I don't like to fly, I think, because I just I don't understand how this mammoth vehicle stays in the air. I don't get it. But I suppose if someone who knew a lot about physics and a lot about technology sat down with me, I could understand it a little bit better. But somebody would have to spend a significant amount of time in hell in order for us to understand what's going on in Gethsemane. We would have to spend a significant amount of time in hell to begin to get it. But that leads to the third thing I want to talk about, and that is the precious comfort that we have in his agony. Listen, when the circumstances of your life push you to the brink of despair, when you feel crushed under the confusion of what God's providence is allowing in your life, when you're buckling under the weight of grief, when you're experiencing that meltdown or that long night of anxiety, or when you're barely holding on and all your friends are sleeping and they're not there to help. And by the way, all of these are whens, not ifs. That's the world we live in. All of these are whens, not ifs. And when these things happen, Behold the Christ of Gethsemane and know that your Lord and Savior has been there too. He knows what it is to writhe under the heavy hand of God. Jesus sympathizes with your suffering. You can cry out in your agony to him and know that you have someone who is able to sympathize and he is able to help. So in your pain, don't run away from Jesus. Run to him. I have found that in my moments of anxiety, distress, pain, fear of the future, confusion about God's silence, I've found that that the only place I could go and find peace and comfort and rest is to Jesus in Gethsemane. Now I will also say that in going to Jesus in Gethsemane, 
My sorrow, my pain, and confusion didn't become something other than sorrow, pain, and confusion. They were still those exact things. But it enabled me to find rest and peace even in the midst of the pain, sorrow, and confusion. Because when I find Jesus in Gethsemane, I know that despite what it looks like, God has something good planned in it. That this will all turn out for good. Because the greatest good is wrought through Jesus enduring Gethsemane and going forward to the cross. And this actually leads to the second thing. Even more than this, it's not just that Jesus sympathizes with your suffering. We have comfort in Gethsemane because Jesus spares you by his suffering. The reality is that none of us will experience what Jesus endured in Gethsemane. The agony in Gethsemane is Christ's and Christ's only. There is no analogy that we can experience. And this is the good news for us. There's peace and comfort here for us, knowing that because Jesus endured Gethsemane, those who believe in him will never have to know what that distress and anguish is like. Because the, the, because the cup did not pass from Jesus, that cup will never come to those who are his, to those who are children of the Father through faith in Jesus. And because our Prince of Peace was deprived of peace for our sakes, we can know peace, peace with God and peace in life. And you can know that peace this morning. It's, it's not going to magically take away what's painful and what's confusing and what's causing you to grieve, but it can give you peace in the midst of it. Even if you're not a believer this morning, you can turn from your sins that cause Jesus such anguish and simply put your faith in him and call him Lord, and you can know that you have peace with God, that, you're no longer, that your sins no longer alienate you from him. And that all things are working together for your good because he has loved you to the point of sending his son to die for your sins. You can know that this morning by putting your faith and your trust in him. Someone has written that Gethsemane is not a field of study for our intellect. It is a sanctuary for our faith. We'll never completely understand it with our intellect, but we can believe it and we can behold the mystery of Gethsemane. So let us behold that mystery and recognize that we don't really clearly know what's going on there, but that's good news for us. And we can find comfort and peace through him who was deprived of comfort and peace for our sakes. And let us worship the Christ who bore our sins and let us praise him who descended into the depths of darkness to pave the way for us to ascend to the heights of light and eternal life in glory. And let us sing praise to our sacred head now wounded. O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the mystery of the agony of Gethsemane, that it will remain forever a mystery for those that you have loved in Christ Jesus, taking our sins from us, forgiving us, and giving us eternal life. And we thank you that in the midst of our pain and suffering, we can know this comfort, 
and we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us and strengthens us. Grant to us increasingly this week and in the weeks ahead the peace that comes through our Prince of Peace. For it's in his name we pray, amen.